From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. It's me, Angie Coiro, again. I'm in for Brad. I am investigating reports that Trump's bizarro press conference knocked Brad out cold, so Desi had to call me in. Not that much has gotten better since then. Oh, by the way, I have a cold, and rather than try to cut all my sniffles out, I'll leave them in so you feel sorry for me. I thrive on sympathy. Donald Trump is lying again, as are his little mini-me's all throughout the White House, Congress, and D.C. this time, about whether he wants to bring in the National Guard to round up those pesky immigrants from the AP. A draft memo obtained by the AP outlines a Trump administration proposal under consideration to mobilize as many as 100,000 National Guard troops to round up immigrants in the U.S. illegally. Millions of those who would be affected in 11 states live nowhere near the Mexican border. The 11-page document calls for the unprecedented militarization of immigration enforcement as far north as Portland, Oregon, as far east as New Orleans. If the proposal is implemented, the AP story goes on, governors in the affected states would have final approval on whether troops under their control participate. Trump and company basically said, Uh Uh-uh. The fact that the document is thoroughly detailed in the AP story is neither here nor there to the Trumpkins who worship at the Cheeto altar, but the AP and CNN, all those others, they're just fake news. You know, it's really scary how thoroughly that trope has been sucked down by his followers. It is very easy to laugh and call them stupid, but you know this, I know this, they're not. At least not all of them are stupid. They are paranoid, scared, angry people who already distrusted the system, and they were just waiting to have that tapped into. And the playbook followed by Trump Co. is textbook fascist hypnotism. You feed the us-them narrative. You undermine faith in news outlets. You provide and consistently reinforce a counter-narrative. Works every time. Worked in Germany. Worked in Italy. Has worked in lots of other places over time. And it's now working in the U.S., So anyway, as noted, something like the National Guard plan would put 100,000 armed troops in 11 states, targeting millions of people here without documentation, and I don't care if you do think they should be deported. You can look at their place in our labor pool and our larger economy to see that this would be absolutely disastrous. Even if you think they need to be gone, even if that were a humane and decent thing to do, This is not the way to do it. But Trump loves to play the shock troops card, and his followers eat it up. So chalk up another win. He just threw kisses to his fan club. While we're on the issues of immigration, 
Let's go to the L.A. Times for this one. The White House has found ways to end protection for dreamers while shielding Trump from blowback. This article by Brian Bennett and Michael Mamoli. While President Trump, it says, wavered Thursday on whether he'll stop shielding from deportation people who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children, his aides have identified at least two ways to quietly end their protections without his fingerprints. An executive order has already been drafted to end the program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DREAM Act, DACA, that allows hundreds of thousands of immigrants to live and work openly in the U.S. Now, even though that has failed fairly miserably because you had these poster children being pulled out into the light by the Trump administration and everybody going, you got to be kidding me. You're lying about a kid being a gang member? I mean, both of their instances were laughable. And so Trump took it on the chin on that one. But we're back to the story here from the L.A. Times. Senior Trump aides are holding fast to their goal of strengthening immigration enforcement. They have examined at least two options that would not directly involve Trump, according to two immigration policy advisors to the White House. One, a lawsuit brought by the states. And two, new legal guidance that details who is a priority for deportation. Handful of governors are considering a challenge pattern on the 2014 lawsuit filed by several conservative state officials against the Obama administration's expansion of deportation protections. If they sue, Jeff Sessions could instruct his lawyers not to defend the program in court, exposing it to indefinite suspension. I don't care how you try to keep Trump's fingerprints off of that. He's already on record as trying to accomplish these very ends. How you call that a non-Trump action? You can't. And by the way, if they pull this off, we may be hearing from Barack Obama. The Dreamers program is his baby, and he will defend it. But how publicly and to what extent? Who knows? And that could backfire anyway, given the apparently eternal animosity to the man. Win or lose. I have no idea. It seems there's either a loss for every win or a win for every loss, depending on your temperament. Glass half full, glass half empty. Scott Pruitt, newly confirmed to trash the EPA, is also facing a demand from an Oklahoma court to produce a ton of emails forthwith. That is a victory. We can talk up to chalk up, that is, to the Center for Media and Democracy. I talked to their executive director, Lisa Graves, today. You're going to hear that in just a few minutes. Now, the goal here has changed. The center had hoped that revealing his deals and his business entanglements through the emails would keep him out of the EPA EPA chair. But that is now a done deal. So now that he's in office, courtesy of most of the GOP, we're going to have to see if whatever's in those emails will ding his chances of doing anything. I don't know. We'll find out. You know, the Dems laid there like boneless chickens for so many years in the face of GOP stubbornness that I just have to pause here to give them their full due. They fought this. They tried on this one. They held the floor of the Senate overnight to protest his nomination. But unless and until a magic number of Republicans suddenly starts caring about the future of the country for the sake of the next generations, if not their own, well, that's not going to help. Good on them for trying it, though. Good on them. 
More on politics giveth, politics taketh away. We're going to do the taketh away part first here. Rasmussen is out with a poll that says, get this, 55% of likely voters approve the job that Trump is doing. I will wait while you either pick yourself off the floor carefully, slowly step down off the ledge, because these findings deserve further probing. As noted by 538 way back in 2010, Rasmussen has a very interesting pattern of dovetailing its narrative with whatever the GOP is spoon-feeding the public at the time. Nate Silver back then addressed Rasmussen's reputation for conservative bias. Not so much bias, he said, but he did note, quote, their polling has consistently and predictably shown better results for Republican candidates than other polling firms have. But such House effects can emerge from legitimate differences of opinion about how to model the electorate. And there you go. The numbers that come out of a poll have an awful lot to do with who you're polling and how and when and the response rate and especially how you phrase the questions. So this takes us back to win-lose. If the numbers from Rasmussen scare you to death, there's an antidote. You can look at Pew Research, which was released almost simultaneously, and those numbers show Trump's support at only 39%. Why believe that? Because it's much more in keeping with other polling. Rasmussen is an extreme compared to everybody else. I know polling schmoling, I'm spending time on this, right? But it's all kind of problematic, and it's very easy to dismiss. But this past week showed us again the potential drip, drip, drip effect of Trump looking bad in one situation after another, and the same for his henchmen and one or two henchwomen. Uh, we're going to talk in a few minutes with Sarah Jaffe. Some union members who bought into Trump's pro-worker narrative are slowly realizing they hitched their wagon to yet another slick businessman. Polls are what we have to track our progress, exposing this guy for what he is. So let's call that pu- pupil a net win. More stuff from the courts. Remember Arlene's Flowers, who refused a long-time customer's request to provide arrangements for his marriage to his boyfriend? The high court in the state of Washington, all nine judges, unanimously, said... No, 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 no. None of that stuff. And no, it is not about who gets blooms on the guest tables. The court said, quote, it's no more about access to flowers than civil rights cases in the 1960s were about access to sandwiches. Public accommodations laws do not simply guarantee access to goods or services. They serve a broader societal purpose eradicating barriers to the equal treatment of all citizens. Now, you got to give credit to Arlene the florist here, or more accurately, her lawyers. They tried to wiggle around the many court precedents for not discriminating against protected groups by calling her work art. You see, this is not commerce. It is about stifling the free speech of an artiste. Yeah, the court didn't buy that one any more than you probably just did. At least one news agency says they will try to take the case to the Supreme Court. Again, we shall see. One other thing worth worth noting before we move on to our guests. It could be a complete coincidence that China just gave Donald Trump new trademark protections. 
those trademark protections that have been a no-go for about 10 years, lo and behold, he's president now. He gets the protections. And oh, it's for his businesses that he refuses to divest his interests in. At Bloomberg.com, Timothy O'Brien noted, given that Trump still hasn't realized, pardon me, released his tax returns and hasn't observed White House traditions of fully disclosing his assets and then distancing himself from them, the presumption will always be there's a good chance he's getting preferential treatment from foreign governments eager to court his favor. And that the most straightforward way to do that is to find ways of helping the Trump organization financially. And here's where the warning come in, comes in. O'Brien said, this is where things could get dicey for the president, as he likes to declare publicly he isn't subject to federal conflict of interest laws. Hmm. But he is subject to the Constitution, specifically the Emoluments Clause that forbids the president from receiving any gift or benefit from a foreign government. You know, there's an excellent article on the whole issue of whether the Emoluments Clause could really take down Trump. And that article is at Forward.com. The watchdog group crew has filed suit for violating the Emoluments Clause, which forbids federal government employees and officials from benefiting from a foreign government. The article, again, this is at Forward.com, was written before this new development with China, but it's really worth your time. So we're going to move into that Oklahoma court case against Pruitt and the latest on the ALEC-Trump connection. It's coming up with Lisa Graves from the Center for Media and Democracy. I'm Angie Cuero. Stick around for that. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Carro. I mentioned at the top of the show the win-lose record this week with Scott Pruitt. He does now sit atop the EPA, but he also faces scrutiny of his emails, courtesy of an Oklahoma court ruling. To parse through that mix of good news, bad news, I got Lisa Graves on the line. She's the director of the Center for Media and Democracy. Lisa, here's the one-two punch. First, we heard that the Center for Media and Democracy had had a success in an Oklahoma court getting some emails from Pruitt that they'd been bottling up for some time. And then cheek by jowl, we get the announcement that he has been confirmed by the Senate to head the EPA. So let's take it in the one-two step there. What happened in that Oklahoma court? Well, just yesterday, a court in Oklahoma ordered Scott Pruitt, who is Trump's nominee uh, to head the EPA, 
ordered him to turn over documents that he's been hiding from us and hiding from the public for more than two years. And so that was a substantial victory for the public's right to know um, those documents are supposed to be turned over by Tuesday, and they include thousands of documents that they have admitted are responsive to our request about uh, Pruitt's close ties and communications uh, with close ties to and communications with uh, big energy companies like Devon Energy, uh, the Southern Company, and more. And so um, we won that case, and uh, that victory. Uh, I think uh, uh, is something that the Republicans didn't want to see happen, don't want to see happen. Uh, So, Lisa, as we see from an article from CNBC and from information from your own group, they've released, Pruitt's office has released a a mere handful of documents from over a thousand that have been requested. What's the situation with what information might be in the remaining emails now? Best case scenario, is there something in here that can unseat him? Is there something in here that can make even the Republicans look Scans at him or get him out of office? Well, the Republicans have already voted to confirm him. Um, and so the only way to get rid of him is for him to resign or for him to be impeached. However, we think these documents will um, make clear the historical record of his deep ties to industry and will allow the American people to help hold him accountable if and when he uh, works to try to reward those same corporations that he's been soliciting money from and helping in their litigation from his new post as the public head of the head of the EPA. And so um, there are thousands of documents he hasn't turned over. And we know, in fact, that some of them uh, that were omitted uh, were actually previously revealed to the New York Times. And so uh, he's hiding a lot. It's thousands of documents. This is just in the first batch. We actually made nine separate requests, and they have only responded with 400 emails a little over 400 emails out of the thousands of responsive documents. And so they have a lot to hide. And that's one of the reasons I think that the Republicans were so eager to try to ram him through the Senate after they dragged their feet on so many Obama nominees. They were eager to try to get this man confirmed before the public could see how much how much he was really up to, how how close in in uh, hand and glove he was working with industry uh, to combat the interests of the public. Uh, in in a cleaner environment, in addressing climate change and more. Is there anything that we can look at in the vote to confirm Pruitt that we can see any leanings from Republicans around the edge that they're starting to be disgruntled with all the hiding and all the secrets? Every once in a while in the news, we'll hear about a Republican who stands up and says, if not overtly, this ain't right, at least say, I have questions, I have concerns. Are you seeing any of that reflected in what just happened? Well, in this instance, we know that Senator uh, Senator Collins, Susan Collins of Maine, voted no. She was the only Republican who had the guts to vote no. And uh, and on the other side, um, Senator Manchin of West Virginia uh, and Senator Heidi Heitkamp uh, were her Democrats who voted for Pruitt. Um, and so what you see is a close relationship developing between Joe Manchin and Trump. Um, he was just at the White House, I think, today on some other measure uh, regarding coal. And so the, the, the Trump administration and the Trump campaign has sought to exploit the downturn of usage of coal um, in this country and globally in part because of the concerns about climate change. They've tried to exploit the change in that industry uh, to try to, you know, gin up support for Trump. And, and Trump did uh, win West Virginia by a substantial number. However, what they're not telling those miners, what they're not telling their families is that the energy of the future is clean energy. And there's so much we could do in this country if there were tremendous investment in clean energy 
to be part of that future, the future economy right now, to join the future economy right now. But instead, what they're doing is they're exploiting the fears of miners who in many instances have been screwed over by some of these same coal companies trying to dodge them on pensions and health care and more. Those same companies are some of the same companies that are backing this Republican majority in uh, in Congress. And so, you know, I think that I think that those miners have been deceived. They've been sold a bill of goods by Trump. And um, and I think it's unfortunate that some of the like two Democratic senators, Senator Heidkamp and Senator Manchin, are so willing to go along with the Trump agenda. Uh, however, I do think that there there's uh, some sign for hope on other fronts, which is to say, I am appreciative of Senator of Senator McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham for standing up and speaking out about about the situation with the with Russia and Trump. And also, you know, we, we heard from Roy Blount from from uh, from Missouri speaking out. And so I think there's increasing worry about Trump. But when it comes to this this agenda of the fossil fuel industry, unfortunately, the Republican Party and Donald Trump, you know, share a common benefactor, and that is the big fossil fuel industry that has made a fortune, an absolute fortune, historic, uh, historic financial returns for oil, uh, oil companies, for example. Um, and those companies are poised to exploit um, this administration and this, um, this Congress. And, you know, the State Department being headed by Exxon is just a, uh, the Exxon former CEO is just an appalling development. So, um, if if there's anything that you could say about this administration that seems crystal clear, it's that they are absolutely in bed with the oil industry, and it's a, that means bad news for the American public. You know, at, at a different point in this hour, we're talking to Sarah Jaffe about some of the union situation. But in terms of telling workers in the energy industry that things would be okay if we didn't protect the status quo, if we did move into clean energy, one of the things that I've seen the right exploit very successfully is the is the fear of change. I mean, people who've been working in an industry their entire lives, maybe they're in the mid-50s, maybe they're approaching 60, they look at the, at the idea of saying, well, I'm not going to be working with coal anymore. I have to learn a new skill, and I have to l- learn to work with energy that I've never had hands-on. They're going to hire somebody younger than me. What's the reality? If we were successful in overturning all of these influences in government and could move to a clean energy, what kind of promise could we hold out to them? Well, you know, the, the fact is, is that is that Clean, clean energy is the wave of the future, and in many ways, that those clean energy jobs are 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 much, in some ways, much better jobs. Uh, there's not this risk of being in the middle of a mine collapse. Uh, it's, there's not this great risk that your 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 town is downriver from the coal ash uh, waste that that this administration just uh, approved. Basically, the ability to to further pollute our waterways with that coal ash, and so. Um, I think that I think that the retraining uh, there certainly would be retraining uh, work that would need to be done, but people would probably be in a safer industry mm-hmm. and um, and a, a, a growing industry versus a retracting industry and an industry that uh, that is one where uh, you know many generations of, of families could uh, you know could be involved in in growing this industry in our country, whether it's solar or wind, um, you know solar or wind energy and variations on that, and so. Um, there's no doubt that there's a lot of fear when there are uh, are changes in our economy and things of that nature. But it is quite clear that there's a tremendous appetite for uh, solar energy in this country, and the industry is fighting hard. So, for example, in the election uh, last fall, um, one of the things that happened was that the the, the coal industry and the and the um, uh, utilities were trying to deceive Florida voters 
uh, to pass a constitutional amendment to their uh, to their constitution to basically make it harder for people to get access to solar in Florida, in mm-hmm. the Sunshine State, because it's so popular. And when people have access to it, it actually does reduce their own energy costs. Um, and it reduces the profits of utility companies that are God forbid. To work for us. Yeah. yeah, they're supposed to actually work for us. They're supposed to be a regulated industry that helps provide all of us uh, clean, cleaner and uh, less costly energy. And so these these um, these big industries like the coal industry are really clinging hard to try to maximize their own profits at the expense of our economy, at the expense of clean energy and at the expense even in states like Arizona and and Florida of people who have ample, massive access to Sun, sunshine year round to make it harder for those uh, Americans to get access to solar energy is ridiculous. God, but that's so sad. Are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, before I let you go, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, this is the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coiro sitting in for Brad, and I'm talking to the Center for Media and Democracy's Lisa Graves. Uh, Lisa, there's a, a post from February 14th, Valentine's Day, the new love affair between Alec and Trumpism. And that is kind of surprising to those of us who heard of the dissonance between one of the Koch brothers, you know, a.k.a. Alec, and Donald Trump. And why all of a sudden are we seeing them snuggling up to each other? And, and how is that manifesting? Well, the Koch agenda, the legislative agenda, to make it harder for workers to organize, to make it harder for us to regulate polluters like Koch Industries, uh, to make it harder for people to sue uh, when they're killed or killed or injured by a corporate product or or practice. Um, those parts of the agenda are moving forward through Alec, and they're moving forward in the Koch administration. Pardon me, in the Trump administration and in Congress, and that's because, in part, because no matter what Charles Koch says in a press release or some sort of PR spin, the fact, you know, his concern about authoritarianism of Trump, the fact is, is that they spent millions to give Trump this majority in the Senate and to get a, major- a majority in the House. And we've documented that on our, si- on our site. And so um, what they're getting is a Congress willing to advance their extreme and narrow legislative agenda and getting state houses willing to do the same. Um, and so while they talk a good game about, you know, their you know, concerns for Trump or they couldn't control Trump, like they might be able to control um, other uh, potential presidential candidates. The fact is that on on this issue of the swamp, the Koch swamp is ascendant. Um, The the Koch industry influence in Congress, in the administration, in the state house is on the rise because that's where they put their money. And so you'll hear from time to time that the Kochs are pro-choice. Well, they don't put their money in it. They claim to be concerned about international affairs. Well, they're not putting their money in protecting us in times of war and peace in that way. And similarly, in this instance, they claim to have deep concerns about Trump. Well, where they put their money is, is in ways that have made him stronger and have gotten their people into key positions in this administration to do, in, in my view, tremendous damage to the public interest of other Americans, of most Americans in this country. Lisa, you've carved out a huge chunk of time for us today, and I thank you so much for that. Oh, Angie, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Happy to be on anytime. And we've got a new site, exposedbycmd.org, where we're housing the documents that we're, we are releasing about Pruitt and where we're going to need people's help to get the word out as this guy takes power at the EPA. Oh, brilliant. And that is, by the way, for anybody who missed it, if you just go to Twitter and look for at PR Watch, you're going to find that on Twitter. And it's the Center for Media and Democracy. Lisa, you rock. We'll talk to you later. (laughs) Thanks so much, Angie. Thanks. Lisa Graves. By the way, while we're on the topic of coal, check out an article here from the L.A. Times. Trump promised a coal renaissance, but keeping open this Arizona plant will test his resolve. This is right on point with what I was talking to Lisa about. This impending closure 
on Navajo Nation territory of a plant, as described here in the L.A. Times, a hulking coal plant that's been the workhouse of the struggling local economy for decades. The news of closing that came like a punch to the gut. The impending closure, as the Times says, also highlights the limitations of Trump's blueprint for saving coal, as none of the easy solutions, cutting environmental regulations, would be enough to rescue the Navajo generating station. Now, that is failing. This is so ironic. This is failing due to free market competition from natural gas. More on the plant itself, the Times notes that it's the largest, most environmentally disruptive coal plant in all of the western United States. If the switch is turned off, it says, as planned in 2019, the Navajo Nation will lose more than a third of its yearly revenue. Sovereign tribe located on land inside the borders is threatened with even greater financial peril. It gets 80% of its money from royalties related to the coal operation. Look at all the stakeholders in this story. We have the native tribes who normally, normally are faced with environmental damage at the hands of the federal government. And here we have a case, obviously, where environmental damage being dealt with is going to imperil their very being. We have Trump, who of course, talks out of both sides of his mouth for clean energy and traditional energy. And here, as noted in the story, this is not even geographically limited. Back to the page here, the sting would ripple out to Page, Flagstaff, and even Phoenix, where the supply chain and the power the plant generates have been a bedrock for the arid Southwest growth since the Nixon administration. Powering delivery of trillions of gallons of water to cities and farms. They note the interconnectedness to the power grid, but let's stick with water for a second because we all know that water wars at some point are going to supplant oil wars. Oil doesn't last forever. Water supplies are increasingly erratic because of climate change. No one sees the benefit yet of putting in the kind of infrastructure that would move water from places of floods to places of drought. They think that right now it's economically not viable nor reasonable. They probably felt that about oil once. But we have all these question marks about how water and power are going to be dealt with, and it looks like they're all coming together here. The article, again, if you want to look it up yourself, Trump promised a coal renaissance, but keeping open this Arizona plant will test his resolve. That's in the Los Angeles Times this week. Up next on the broadcast, Donald Trump shakes hands all around at Boeing in South Carolina, where management just prevailed in a union battle. Unions and Trump, a very murky picture, labor journal Sarah Jaffe will help us sort through that. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor 
man's made out of muscle and blood. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Caro, spread across two chairs today to sit in for both Brad and Desi. Donald Trump and unions. Unions and Donald Trump. It is a very complicated relationship. Oh, yes, it is. He does have appeal to some workers. They heard his brave activist call to drain the Washington swamp, and little did they know he would bring along his own team of alligators and plenty of muck for them to swim in. Within 24 hours of honking about the urgency of clearing out the bad hombres who are pouring over the border to rape and pillage, he took time out to party at Boeing in South Carolina. They had just turned down unionization. And the New York Times published a piece on Trump's intricate relations with unions. Labor journalist Sarah Jaffe seemed just the person to probe this with. She is the author of Necessary Trouble and co-host of Dissent Magazine's Belabored podcast. Sarah, welcome back again. Thanks for having me. Where do unions stand with regard to Trump? We know that there's an appeal to blue-collar workers who are still, you know, unions are still primarily blue-collar workers. You know, correct me on that if that's not true. So there's that appeal. It is but not true. It is not true. Okay, so you can fill me it in on that. It is not true. Oh. Um, unions at this point are primarily pink-collar workers. Food workers, etc. Women, service workers, um, teachers are the most unionized profession in the country, nurses, hospital assistants. Um, et cetera. So, yeah, it is, uh, it is a changing labor movement. Well, and that's a, that's a good distinction. So do we see any, any difference between how white collar, how pink collar, how blue collar workers view President Trump? Well, you know, I mean, there are a lot of, of things that are taken for granted now that are not exactly true when we talk about Trump and his base and who voted for him that need a lot of unpacking and that I'm, I'm kind of watching them get passed around as if they're fact. Um, and so, you know, the the thing that is true is that Trump made a concerted play for blue collar workers that Hillary Clinton left on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, that is certainly true. It is not true that that was really the base of his support. The base of his support was more typical Republican um, small business owners and the like that normally vote Republican and obviously be very wealthy who um, tend to vote Republican. And so. Um, that's one thing. Then, then the other thing, right, is that his particular um, appeal to labor is appealing to a very particular part of the labor movement. Um, the one that, in many cases, the one that has been under um, not under political attack so much directly as the one that's been under attack by jobs just disappearing um, for a variety of reasons, from automation to the you know the uh, collapse in construction after the financial crisis to, um, you know, to bad trade deals that helped ship jobs overseas. And so Trump took a very sort of narrow appeal to um, what I would talk about as like an identity politics of labor in in that way Mm -hmm. to try to pull away some union voters. And he got a larger percentage of union households than I think a Republican since Ronald Reagan. Um, Hillary Clinton got the smallest percentage of of union households for a Democratic candidate in quite a long time. And so it's it's worth talking about that Trump has tried to appeal to labor. And and, but it's also worth unpacking the ways that that happened. Mm hmm. Well, it's interesting that, uh, granted, the events this week, there's an, a piece from Marketplace that aired over a week ago, and it was talking about how many EPA employees had joined the union. And they were sparked by fear of what Trump was doing in their venue of work. And, you know, obviously, all bets right. are off now that we've got Pruitt in. But it's interesting oh, yeah. to see who's motivated to move toward a union because of Trump. Yeah, and I think that that's 
um, that's been happening in a, in a variety of fields. Right. And it's also, you know, it, it, it kind of makes me want to shake my head a little bit because like, come on guys. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I'm just thinking about the argument in that, the times piece that the workers, that there was a kind of convoluted argument that I don't have not seen any support in fact for that workers at the Boeing plant in South Carolina decided they wanted a union because of Trump, except the union election there lost by a pretty large margin, which we could talk about for hours about why that might have happened. But, you know, I, I think that there's a very clear understanding from a lot of working people that this administration is not their friend. And that comes on all levels, right, where they have said, Sean Spicer has said that Trump is in favor of a national right to work law, um, right to work being the law that would um, require unions to represent workers who don't pay them any dues, which is a, a strategy for defunding labor unions. Yeah. How long uh, do you last with that kind of rule? Uh, it depends on how good your union is. There, mm. are, you, there are very, very strong unions in some places in right to work states like Nevada has um, incredibly strong union workers in uh, Las Vegas. The workers who work at the casinos and restaurants and the tourist industry in Nevada are, again, as we were talking about a pink collar workforce. And when you're talking about hotel housekeepers and restaurant servers, who have a very, very strong, powerful union that's credited with Hillary Clinton winning, with helping Hillary Clinton win that state. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in essence, what a, a right to work law does is it makes it very, very easy for workers to just coast on whatever protections they get from the union without paying anything into it. And if the union does not have a really strong organizing program that makes it clear to people that the union is stronger when they are members of it and when they're actively shaping it, then the union pretty quickly falls apart. Um, and so that kind of thing is going to hit unions across the board, no matter whether their leaders have been asked to cozy sit-down meetings in the White House with Donald Trump or not. Um, in one of those cozy sit-down meetings um, with building trades leaders, Trump was sort of equivocal on whether he would um, completely destroy prevailing wage laws that set wages and, and um, working conditions for workers on government-sponsored projects, things like that. Um, this is a really, really important thing to the construction trades. And, you know, I... Yeah. So so this administration clearly wants to play off parts of labor against each other and mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the, the push for things like, you know, allowing coal companies to do whatever they want with some pretense that that's going to make life better for workers who work in or used to work in coal. Um, think, you know, things like pushing through the Dakota Access Pipeline which was, of course, supported by the unions who would get jobs working on it while opposed by many others who stood in solidarity with the Standing Rock people. It's a really, you know, it's while he's trying to play up to certain parts of the labor movement, he's also perfectly willing to pass all sorts of laws and, and eliminate all sorts of regulations that would make those workers' lives and jobs better. That's one thing that I'm hoping will eventually contribute if we ever do see a Donald Trump downfall. One of the things I'm hoping will contribute is that people who see him doing something ostensibly for them and then turn around and slap yeah. them, that eventually some preponderance of people will say, this guy is not our friend. Yeah, he gave us this cherry, yeah. but he took away the Sunday. Well, and, and that's already happening to a large degree, right? We're, we're seeing his poll numbers um, reflect that. And that the momentum story, which was 
uh, mentioned in the New York Times article is an interesting example of that because the area in New York, which is just a little bit north of where I live, where the Momentive plant is located, this is a place that voted twice the area went for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And then this election, it swung to Donald Trump. And the the um, leader of the union local that represents the, the workers at the Momentive plant who were on strike for 100 days and just came off of it last week, um, said that about 40% of the workers at his plan voted for Trump. And so some of those workers were then saying while they were standing over a burn barrel on Christmas on the picket line, um, you know, Trump said he wanted to make America great again and, and bring good jobs back. Well, this company wants to, you know, destroy our health care and make us give back all sorts of um, pay benefits and, and working conditions benefits that we've won over years of collective bargaining. And so, you know, one of the the most interesting things about the Momentive story is that Momentive used to be part of GE. It was spun off and it was bought when it was spun off by a, a consortium of hedge fund managers and private equity folks, one of whom was um, John Schwartzman, who is Donald Trump's quote unquote jobs advisor. Mm-hmm. So when they, they, you know, they, again, like had a very particular angle on this. It was not just like, hey, Trump, help us get better jobs, which is one thing that he did, in fact, promise to do. But, hey, you're cozying up to this guy and literally like getting on your private jet and flying to Mar-a-Lago with this guy <laughs> who is, you know, whose entire business model depends on buying companies, uh, stripping them down for parts forcing concessions out of the workforce and then selling them at some sort of profit. This guy is your jobs advisor. Like, come on. Yeah. And so, you know, some of the, some of the guys who work at, at Momentus still were saying, you know, we, we, you know, we think Donald Trump's going to do the right thing. Um, But they were also saying like, Hey, you can, you have a very good opportunity to do the right thing right here by us. Yes. Yeah. You're listening to Sarah Jaffe on the broadcast. I'm Angie Coyer, sitting in for Brad today. You might want to check out her book, very good, called Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. I want to backtrack to Boeing, Sarah, because I know you said earlier that we could spend hours on this topic, but can you give us... spend hours. Yeah, exactly. But what happened there was (laughs) that the union was voted down, and then we see Trump doing a victory dance there. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what went down and what will continue to matter there? I mean, what went down was that it it seems like the union didn't really do the legwork to make sure before calling for an election that it was actually going to win the election. And so union organizers will try to have like 80 or 90 percent commitment from the workers before filing for an election because they know that that's going to go away because they know as soon as they file for an election, the boss is going to start calling in the expensive anti-union consultants and having captive audience meetings and threatening all sorts of things, which is all perfectly legal, by the way, even before Donald Trump, um, although they often skirt the line of what is and is not legal, Mm -hmm. these consultants. Um, And so basically, you know that when you file for an NLRB election, the boss is going to do everything and throw everything, including the kitchen sink at you to try to cut away at your numbers. Right. If you don't have a really good, solid, um, not only like understanding of what um, is going to happen that you're, or rather if you don't make sure that the workers have a really good, solid understanding of what's going to happen when those consultants come in, if you don't have a really good, solid base within that workplace, you know, they, they pick your people off and Mm -hmm. they, you know, they beat the election. The fact that the union lost by so much is just, it just makes me wonder um, what 
you know, what was going on there. And I haven't been down there. I haven't talked to any of the workers. So this is all, you know, sort of my third hand um, observation. But this is South Carolina. It's not a, a it's one of the uh, the states with the fewest unions in the country. Mm-hmm. It's not a place where the workers will have general experience or knowledge of a union campaign. They're going to really be the ones who get blindsided by the you know, what happens when the boss decides to to kill your union. Mm-hmm. And so it's if you don't do really, 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 really strong organizing and education around that, then it's easy to lose. And unfortunately, that's what happened there. And, and it's being reported as sort of a massive setback for labor. And I don't think that that's true, because I, I don't think that we should put that much um emphasis on any one union election because right. just because um the workers for instance at um the Smithfield uh, pork processing plants in North Carolina um won a union in the face of incredible odds not that long ago that didn't spark a wave of union organizing across the south either and there's no evidence that winning at Boeing would have done anything other than you know be a sort of I things I can't say on the radio directed <laughs> at Nikki Haley on her way out the door to the UN um because Nikki Haley, of course, famously bragged when seducing uh, <laughs> Boeing to come to South Carolina that she wore high heels because she wanted to kick the unions with. Yikes. Um, the whole reason that Boeing put a plant in South Carolina is because they assumed it would be a non-union plant. Mm-hmm. And pretty safely so far. Sarah, every time I get your newsletter, one, I'm impressed with how much you do. And secondly, it's like, God, this <laughs> makes me tired. She does so much. But uh, let yeah, me just get... me. It makes me tired, too. I can imagine. Let's just get the word out about your podcast. Um, I love your Twitter bio where you say you were a labor journal before it was cool. But for people who want to check out the Belabored <laughs> podcast, how many times a week does that come out and where can they catch it? Uh, so Belabored comes out every two weeks. I'm also doing a new project called called Interviews for Resistance, which is also available as a podcast and it's syndicated across uh, several news outlets, including The Progressive, In These Times, Truth Out, The Baffler, and Moyers and & Company. Um, and that is twice a week. All right. So, yes, may- I'm busy. Yeah. Yeah, you are. And that means I'm all the more grateful you carved out some time for us. Thanks, Sarah. No problem. You can find Sarah at NecessaryTrouble.org. And on Twitter, look for Sarah with an H-L, Jaffe. So let's take the last few minutes of the program. to. We're going to stay on the labor beat. I want to look at a protest that just passed and a protest that is planned. We know that we're in a new era of protest. That is grand. I hope next week to bring you some some dialogue that I had with a couple of long-time campaigners, including one that marched with Martin Luther King. And we were talking about the efficacy of protest. We were talking about the point of protest. So point one, with all the marches that have been going on, we hear a couple criticisms pretty consistently. One is that a group or another group is misrepresented or shorted or slighted in some way. There's a lot of validity to that. I don't have time to get into it today, but again, I'm going to get into that next week with you in some depth. The other thing that comes up with marching is what are you doing it for? And we often hear that second criticism that, yeah, you're out there, but you're out there without any goals. You're out there without a plan. You're out there without specific demands. You're just out there making noise. And from that dialogue that I had with these protesters, with these long-time protesters, 
they emphasize that that's okay because protests all serve different functions. And whereas a group that is marching may only be calling attention to the fact that it is unhappy, that is valid. As the man who marched for civil rights said back in the 1960s, he didn't know how to draft laws for equality under the law. What he did know was how to organize and how to make his voice heard. So he left drafting the laws to the NAACP, and he took on the job of getting out there and making his voice heard, of keeping the topics alive. So as we look at all the different marches and protests that we see, I think it is critical to take in and consider all the criticisms about those. It's also important just to keep them up. And they thrive on success. Once you see a growing number of voices chiming in with the doubts and demands that you have yourself, that's a win right there. So from there, let's go to Day Without an Immigrant. That was nationwide. Day Without an Immigrant was about displaying to people exactly what life would look like in the United States without people in various positions from field workers to busboys to waiters to accountants to CEOs and everything in between. And whether you're talking about people who are here legally or not, you're talking about an inherent part of our system, gears in the works that help us have the days that we're so used to having. And a day without immigrants opened up the holes in the picture of the U.S. that we would be experiencing and having to step around if suddenly we didn't have the immigrants that so many people are bashing, be they legal or not. Some of what we were seeing across the United States was really encouraging. I mean, restaurants not only closing because they didn't have the labor, but closing in unity with the workers, closing to say, we agree with this point. We take the same stand. We support our workers. And that's a grand thing. But what's important to consider, if the immigrant is a CEO, if the immigrant is programming code at Google, if they're doing interface with customers at Facebook, that's one consideration. They take a day off, they're okay. The people who really sacrificed, really sacrificed, are those who took a day off to whom it meant a real dent in pay. Now, CNN.com talked to the owner of the Little Red Fox restaurant in Washington, D.C. And Matt Carr, it says, had no problem letting his immigrant employees strike, even though they're vital to his business. But before those workers went on strike, they made sure business was taken care of. They worked double time. He said he appreciated the dedication of his employees, He let them work double time. He let them garner not only the extra pay, presumably, but to get the work done in advance. Everybody wins. Not all the employers did that. Not all the employers were in a position to do that. So when we talk about these days of strike, when we talk about these days of protest, when we talk about pointing up the gulfs in American life, we need to be aware exactly what it is that we're asking of people. That's not just in retrospect. Coming up next month, there's a women's march in Washington, and they're planning a day without a woman strike. 
Women, just like immigrants, fill all kinds of positions across the economic spectrum. They are valuable in so many ways, so many places, so many roles, and just like immigrant workers, some of them will take a serious fiscal hit or perhaps even endanger their jobs if they take a day off. There may be, there may be some provisions being considered for women who are in that position. If there are, I have not heard of them. The Washington Post says the terms of the strike, how it would work, are unclear. Organizers said they're sharing more information and actions over the coming weeks. And what I am looking for, and what I hope I'm not the only voice looking for, is some kind of cover, some kind of allocation for people to whom it is a big deal to take a day off of work. It is a big deal to take that cut in pay. It is a big deal to endanger their livelihood either by taking that pay cut or being told not to come back, not to bother. It's like so many other things in our activist ecosystem. It's easy, as it is in any other walk of life, to lose sight of someone else's reality. We can go out and feel good and be a woman at the march or a woman participating in a day without women. But we can't just do that as individuals. We have to look across the spectrum and see who is sacrificing what to do that. Example. I'm not endorsing this per se. I'm throwing out an idea. For example, if you're going to participate in the strike and you can afford to do so, you toss 20 bucks in the pot for a recovery fund for women who can't. You're sitting it out for whatever reason. You can't make it. You can't tame up, take time off of work, but you can afford to throw in 10 bucks in the pot to cover the women who cannot afford to take that time off. It's just like a strike fund. Unions from very early on created strike funds so that people working in plants, people working underground digging out coal, had some coverage because the fiscal reality was it made a difference not to go to work whether they could feed their kids. The scenes around it may have changed, but that has not changed. Striking is noble. I'm glad we're seeing it organized. I'm glad that the idea of unity around labor has not dissolved. In fact, you could argue it's undergoing a renaissance. But just like back then, there are mouths to feed. There are mortgages to pay. There's rent to pay. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, you have to have three full-time minimum wage jobs to even have a roof over your head. Can we say to those people that if you take a day without a woman strike, we'll cover the gas in your car. We'll cover your kid's dinner that night. It's a small thing, but it accomplishes two different goals. One is it increases the number of people who feel heard and feel they can participate in the strike. And secondly, it reminds those of us who may be so fortunate as to do this, filled with fervor and filled with a sense of rightness and filled with patriotism, but perhaps, perhaps, with a little bit of a blind spot that not all of us are so lucky. It underlines for us that that is the reality we're acknowledging and one of the truisms that we're fighting over, so that everyone has a secure life. So kudos to everyone who took a day off for a day without immigrants. Kudos to all the owners of all the companies, large and small, who allocated for that and supported that. Kudos to those who are putting together the day without a woman 
and the March for Women. Think ahead and try to include and acknowledge everyone on an equal financial footing, no matter how you have to do it. Those are my thoughts. Brad Friedman and Desi are going to be coming on back for the next show. I will be with you again a little bit more next week, and I am very much appreciating that. Until then, good luck, world. <laughs>